Hello and welcome to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer to Sound On Sight, and I am joined by my co-host Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound On Sight. Hello, Kate. Have you had honey recently? I have not. I opted for tea without honey the other day, and I'm feeling good about that choice now. That's probably a good choice. We're going to talk this week about Season 2, Episode 4, Takiyawase, and joining us this week from Battleship Pretension is Aaron Pinkston. Hello, Aaron, and welcome hey. to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, so before we get into some of the more obviously intriguing aspects of this episode, I just wanted to talk about the beginning in which we get this uh, another dream sequence in which Will is fishing for his memories, only this time he's joined by Abigail Hobbs. And they are talking about the differences between hunting and fishing. And at first, she doesn't seem to notice much of the differences in the grand scheme of things and says, in one you stalk, in the other you lure. And Will's retort is, in one you catch, the other you shoot. And we've definitely seen Will occupy the role of fisherman. I mean, obviously, in in these scenes, that's what he's doing. Uh, But he does seem the kind of person that, that falls in line with those descriptions of luring and catching rather than stalking and shooting, although we have seen him shoot, of course. But I wanted to start talking about Hannibal in relation to this. And Aaron, do you see Hannibal more as the kind of hunter or as the fisher in this analogy, given that it's kind of suggested that he's playing with Beverly Katz in this episode and almost lures her into the situation at the end? Mm-hmm. Starting me off with a tough question. That, that's, uh, that's, that's good, yeah. Um, you know... I guess my first instinct would be to think of him as the hunter, but the way when you sort of preface with what he's doing at the end of this episode, that might throw a wrench into my original thought there. That was the problem that I was having as well, because he does seem to occupy the hunter role most of the time. We saw that in uh, episode two when he went to go supposedly kill Dr. Demoye, but this was kind of a carefully planned thing that he he gets cats into in this episode, so it seemed almost off. I have a theory on this. I feel like he hunts his prey and he and he fishes for his friends. Hmm. So with Will, that doesn't feel like stalking. That feels like manipulation and you know having fun. Uh, whereas it doesn't. It doesn't seem like when we the few times we see him interacting, you know, with, with his the people that he ends up killing in the in the method of other serial killers, that seems to be much more the the stalking and less you know. For the the fun of it, I don't know. What, what do you think of that? I think that's a really interesting idea, and I hadn't even thought about it in terms of how they approach different kinds of people in their lives. And it makes sense, and it would probably make sense for Will as well, because, like I said, I think both of them probably occupy a natural role here, where Will is most of the time a fisherman, and Hannibal is most of the time a hunter. But again, when it came to Garrett Jacob Hobbs, he had to be the hunter in that instance. Right. Well, and, and also in that instance, this is this is pretty soon after Will has sort of come into close ties with Hannibal, and, and, and Hannibal is definitely the one who's driving, who drives that altercation. So it being a little out of character uh, for Will, who is the fisherman becoming the hunter, I, I think that makes sense with Hannibal also sort of working his his game onto onto what Will is doing. Absolutely. And that's a really interesting idea. And that was kind of where I wanted to start. And we can refer back to, to these roles as we talk. But I wanted to move on and ask uh, ask you a question, Kate, and maybe relate this to, to television a little bit more generally before going into it. And you can call on any of the shows that you've seen recently that can kind of help you talk about this. But the idea or the, the device of the cliffhanger and how we end this episode, which I'm not sure if I would call it a cliffhanger, based on my definition of that. But what do you think makes a good cliffhanger? It's not the most interesting answer, but I think for for cliffhangers, you can be pretty literal. Uh, it can either be a plot or a, a suspense cliffhanger, or it can be an emotional one. It doesn't have to act, be an active, you know, physical threat. It could be, you know, emotional stakes to something, but there needs to be a cliff that your character is dangling from, be it literal or metaphorical uh, or emotional, or... Uh, and then you don't know whether they will be able to pull themselves back up or they will fall. I mean, it, it's it's a really basic idea. For me, the end of this episode is not a cliffhanger 
because we don't think she's gonna escape. <laughs> the only cliffhanger to it, you know, it, or it, which I wouldn't even call it a cliffhanger, is the notion of that bullet hole, which seem, it seems obvious to me will come back into play or they wouldn't have shown it to us. Beverly is dead. Hannibal doesn't seem to, uh, you know, she may be dead very painfully and very slowly, but she is hopefully already dead. And so uh, I don't feel like that there's a, a cliffhanger about her so much as a hint at what's to come with that with that bullet hole. Absolutely, and that's why I wanted to ask and why I also didn't really consider it much of a cliffhanger because that depends, like you said, on that precipice that there are options available and there's just, they said, Beverly's dead. It's unfortunate for us as viewers who like her or have grown to like her, but that's just the case. And, and like you said, the, the bullet hole going up, for one, absolutely, that's going to be important going forward. Um, but that also is an indication that, you know, Hannibal probably grabbed her arm and he's in the position now where he has total control of the situation. So if this isn't a cliffhanger, uh, Aaron, do you maybe want to talk about this final scene as kind of a very well executed, tense, almost horror film like scene and maybe the direction in this episode as well? Because there are a lot of interesting decisions like um, some almost requiem for a dream, like drug induced scenes, stuff like that. Yeah. Overall, I think this episode was decent. I, I don't think it's it's really a standout episode um, for the series, but I think there are a few moments that are really just generally creepy, uh, including that final scene. I think the best part of that final scene is, one, this is obviously as close as we've gotten to where Hannibal does all of or most of his very nasty things that, that we only sort of imagine, but it doesn't it doesn't give us the whole view of everything and the fact that she's standing there and she's looking at the camera basically behind the camera of, of and her reaction to what is back there uh, is is incredibly frightening uh, but we don't get we don't get the privilege of seeing that one of the biggest horror tropes um, in many films is not fully showing what is the scariest part you know there, there's the old adage about jaws where of course, you don't see the whole shark until the end. Um, same with Alien and, and a whole, you know, many of the great horror movies. And and I think it uses that uh, that idea really well to to let us sort of fill in the gaps of what she's seeing and, and just taking her reaction, uh, which is, is pretty pretty frightening. Uh, there's also the scene earlier in the episode after the second victim has been lobotomized and and him just standing there and, and the little girl approaching him and then slowly turning to the camera. Uh, again, that's another scene that really sort of milks everything and not showing you everything right away uh, and then really just ratcheting up the tension as, as you're getting closer and closer to this horrific vision. So I, I, th I think, yeah, those, those two scenes in particular, I think are, are really good in, in terms of being uh, – being horror, hor horrific shots. Speaking of being, pun time. Yeah, one of the other... <laughs> yeah, there you go. Good transition. One of, one of the other interesting directorial decisions in this was when we followed from the B perspective. It, it was almost like that, that Jack Daniels Honey commercial, if you've seen that, where we're just watching this bee and it goes through the guy's head in this, in this instance. But I think Hannibal has a very specific art style and this seemed almost out of place in the episode along with when will goes under when he's um letting dr children test him that seemed a little different for for hannibal's style did you notice anything else in this episode kate in terms of the technical aspects that were interesting in some way because they were slightly different maybe yeah i think you, you already pointed out the b sequence that reminded me very much of uh of Pushing Daisies, and if it had had a different score and, you know, a different final destination of the honeycomb, I think that would have fit very nicely and with that, that very memorable beekeeping episode of uh, of Pushing Daisies. Uh, but, you, yes, we have the strobes. We, you know, it was very odd or very interesting to me when I started the episode, and, of course, we have that warning of graphic content, but it's also of the use of strobes, which is something new for the show. So it was nice to have that little bit of a warning. Um, when we have the, you know, I, I like that we have Abigail pop up in the sequence at the beginning. That was a surprise. Having um, this, this flashback 
or I mean, I guess for us it's a flashback because we we saw the scene originally in season one. I'm mean, actually I wanted to ask what you guys what you thought about this, but having you know the Eddie Izzard uh, scene from season one you know, re- repeated here now, Will is able to recall it or experience it in some way. Uh, that was you know appropriately odd and 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 disconcerting or just it it felt off in a way that feels very intentional because of course it's will experiencing this in a different way than the way that we we watched it of course in season one um but those were the the ones that popped out to, to me as being other than the the rest of the season so far or what i was necessarily expecting uh tonally when i was watching that opening scene with abigail i in will's mind palace i kept waiting for because of course she was smiling so broadly i kept waiting for the show to pull the horrible giant gash gashed smile thing or something i kept waiting i was i almost had my hands over my face just waiting for something horrible to invade Will's uh, pretty happy, you know, stream there. Was that just me? Oh, I was looking for a missing ear, definitely. Yeah. Well, it seemed too idyllic, right? I yeah. mean, he's such a tortured person. You, Or at least, you know, that antler motif or the, the fake Hannibal with the antlers coming out of the water, grabbing, I don't know, doing something. It, it seemed too sunshiny to be from his, uh, his mind. And it was still really affecting in the dark way that Hannibal is only much more subtly at the end of that conversation that they have when he's explaining that you name the lure after somebody you cherished and if that person cherished you then superstition means that you're going to to get the catch and he says that he named it Abigail and it's so kind of heartbreaking that how deeply that guilt manifests in his subconscious um, that that really still worked for me and was kind of as intrusive as seeing the the stag Hannibal in there. But uh, Kate, you mentioned that scene with, with Abel Gideon and we got to welcome back Eddie Izzard. So that's fantastic. But that did also feel a little strange. The most difficult part I had with it was when Hannibal turns to Will and says, terrible to have your identity taken from you. Cause I didn't really know who he was referring to and in what, tone as if it was like sarcastic or or just completely literal so i don't know did either of you have a take on that i think it's probably both i mean obviously uh i I was very caught by hannibal's eyeline in that scene and i'm i was trying to remember do you guys uh think was that the same scene uh so did they get eddie Izzard back and refilm it or did they uh, take the existing footage and then maybe do a few new shots of Mass Mickelson so that we could get a changed eyeline from him. I couldn't tell if it was Hugh Dancy up against a green screen and then with an extra shot of, of Mass Mickelson added in to get that that changed eyeline or if they restaged it. I want to believe it was restaged just because yeah. Eddie Izzard's name was in the credits and I felt like oh, that, makes that sense. would that would warrant like a new scene, but right. again, and I think you have to go back. Thematically, it probably makes more sense, right? Mm-hmm. Since it's from sort of a slightly different perspective. I don't know. Yeah. But obviously Hannibal at that point was not happy about Abel Gideon uh, co-opting his name and, ta- and his identity as a serial killer. So there's that. Liter- and of course, Wills had his identity taken or his, his name as, as far as these things go removed for him so, so there's also i feel there's like a level of sympathy from hannibal to will or, and there's also a power dynamic there of i took your name or i took your good name and uh, i've re- replaced you on the team uh, but there's also a, a sense of um yeah doesn't that suck the sympathy kind of i don't know i think <laughs> it was sort of all of that i don't know aaron am i just being too uh evasive here not giving not coming down firmly am i too on too on the fence yeah, you know, I don't know if I would, I I don't know if I totally agree about the the sympathy side of that, but I do think it's interesting how so Gideon is is taking has taken credit for Hannibal's crimes, and then Hannibal the the crimes that Hannibal committed, Hannibal has put on to Will. So there is this sort of strange triangle there, which I, I'm hoping we're getting going to get more of. I think it seems like in the next episode. Uh, Will and, and Gideon uh, come together 
So I, yeah, I, that's sort of a, it's sort of a strange triumvirate of these these people kind of all sharing the same the same space of these these crimes. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about the scene from you know the, that's restaging of a season one scene. I wanted to ask right. before I forget of uh, the opening scene. That dialogue was very familiar to me. Didn't Will and Abigail have that conversation in season one about hunting and fishing? They definitely reiterated the idea of Will as her father figure. I'm not sure if that was straight dialogue Mm -hmm. stealing, but yeah, it did have a familiar sense to it, which I guess given the nature of those kinds of scenes makes sense. Yeah, it's memory. Yeah. I mean, I rewatched season one not too long ago, and I don't remember that specifically, but you could be right. Well, we've talked a little bit about that final scene there at the end, but we should probably spend a little bit of time just, I guess, looking at Beverly Katz's place in this series overall now that she's no longer a part of it. And I had mentioned last week that for a while there, she had kind of been the weak link for me. She wasn't all that interesting um, compared to some of the fantastic actors in this series. Uh, I just thought that she had been doing a fine job and not necessarily a standout one. But over the past couple episodes, like they really stepped it up with her. And obviously she was really important to Will's design to get himself exonerated. And she had a lot more and better material to work with. And unfortunately, like we said last week, we're, we're sad to see her go because that was the obvious fate. But can one of you maybe talk, Aaron, about um, just how she's contributed to this series and how she fit into Hannibal and what it's going to like, what it's going to be like um, now that she's gone. Yeah. You know, I kind of, when you say she was the weak link for you, I agree to that in some ways. There are other characters that I found less integral to the show or or less well handled. Uh, I always sort of saw her as a, a minor character. Of course, she's sort of a, she's one of these the three examiners who are definitely sort of the lower tier characters. So it was a little strange that they started giving her more, more and more the last few episodes. And I guess we know why (laughs) Um, now by the end of this episode to, to sort of set her up um, for that death. It's, it's interesting. I mean, it's, 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 I think it's good to know that this is showing that the show won't be afraid to get rid of characters as as it goes along of course also with the the flash forward with jack crawford's supposed death that that sort of cements it a little bit more so i I think if if that's her legacy the character's legacy is being offed by hannibal as as a reminder that hannibal's really close to these people and he could kill any of them at any time uh if the moment is right then I, I guess that's a good thing in terms of just keeping us in check and, and, and knowing that from here on out. Hey Kate, were you satisfied with the material that Beverly had been getting recently? And do you think that there's an obvious next character that Will can draw on as help now that she's dead? I know that he's kind of started to manipulate Chilton, kind of playing to his vanity, but it doesn't seem like... Shilton would be the one to be doing that kind of investigation. So is there somebody else who occupies that role? Right now, no. And that's what I think is interesting about them killing Beverly this quickly. As soon as she goes over to his house, it was like, oh, oh, Beverly, I liked you. <laughs> and I do think the material they gave her this season was far more interesting than what they gave her last season, which was almost nothing, which was also the case for, for the uh, the rest of that trio. Uh, and so where we're at now with the characters, I don't know what the approach will be because, which is interesting in its own right, but because Alana is very convinced that Will is mentally uh, ill, but very clearly responsible, you know, that he did it, but he wasn't in control of his actions and he wasn't in of a right mind when he did. And the the other of, of the trio don't seem like they are going to be headed out to the asylum anytime soon or to the, the hospital for the chameleon sane. Uh, particularly, I don't remember the, the the character name, but we had him last week just balking at the even the, the barest notion of of maybe we should be listening to Will Graham. So it's not going to be coming from that same source, and that that is interesting to me. The way that Will continues to manipulate Chilton should be fun. I would I was curious if anybody else felt like he was, you know, sort of setting up Chilton to get killed by Hannibal uh, this week. <laughs> no, I definitely felt that, uh, and I I think they, the 
the parting of Chilton and Hannibal, uh, what is the very last thing he says to, to Hannibal? Have to stick together. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that's that's an interesting turn for the rest uh, the rest of of this season. I do well. I I know that if you saw the the preview for next week, it looks like he may be getting two more allies at the hospital, which might push it into a different sort of direction. It looks like him and Gideon uh, get to a chance to uh, to meet, and then it looks like there's a character that's introduced next week that might be very interesting and, and an interesting sort of ally for him, but we'll see where that goes. We were talking about that last week and that strange vision that Will had at the end where Hannibal's beckoning him back to his cell, and they kind of touched on that a little bit intentionally or not in this episode when Will is talking to Beverly about going through with this investigation and he says, you look out there and I'll look in here as if, like we were speculating, that there's some answers within the asylum for Will to find or that he absolutely needs to be there and lay some kind of foundation mentally, um, emotionally, psychologically, however you want to describe it, before being able to get back into the real world. So I thought that that was interesting. There's two other huge storylines in this episode that make up the bulk of the material, and they're very interconnected, both dealing with characters wanting or having the capacity to give other characters a more or a less painful death or a more happy death based on some type of standard. Uh, We should probably talk Gina Torres first, I think, just as another returning actress in this episode. Kate, we were wondering when she was going to return, if she was going to return before her character died. And it was good to see her return. And she obviously got a lot of interesting material, some really great scenes, especially with Hannibal. Kate, could you talk a little bit about the, the, I guess, attempted suicide and the events that happen in that and how they happen and how Hannibal kind of leaves this decision up to chance, seemingly? Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. I I gotta say, it was so wonderful to see Gina Torres back on Hannibal. We talked about it last week, wanting her to be back. I'm glad that, that she is. At least this week, we'll see how she recurs as the season moves forward. But uh, not only was it lovely to see the character and to see her interacting with Jack and to get to see Gina Torres and Lawrence Fishburne, who are married in real life, playing spouses on TV. It doesn't happen very frequently. Um, so aside from all of that, uh, I also wanted to specifically mention the costuming and the makeup. I loved the makeup or, you know, seeming lack thereof on her and uh, c- contrasting her physicality and her uh, wardrobe and her makeup now with season one. Uh, but I also I do think that that flip of the coin is very interesting because theoretically it is to Hannibal's best interests for Jack to be distracted. And what better to distract him than a dying wife? A dead wife is, he could throw himself into his work. And so it is to, it serves Hannibal for Jack to be very occupied with Bella. So the fact that he leaves it up to a coin flip uh, was seemingly, that that is, um, I think is interesting because to me that feels like he's weighing his self-interest against his affinity for or respect for her wishes uh and th- that that's what i was seeing in it but i think you could also n- maybe argue it um he didn't care i don't know I, do you did you guys think that the coin flip wasn't a demonstration of him caring as sort of what i was seeing or of him not caring yeah i think he cares i mean there are conversations they have together it almost seems like to me anyway that his interactions with her are the only time where he's not really trying to play a game. Like he's being somewhat genuine in those moments. So, I mean, I think that they do have this sort of trust with each other that he would, he would actually care for her. And I think that that's what makes what he does even more damning for, for both of them and and why she, uh, you know, is even extra upset about it after she is, is revived It's interesting just in the aftermath of that season premiere and the cold open that we got, because as these episodes have gone on, it just feels like Hannibal and Jack are getting closer and closer, and their friendship is only developing further in the positive direction, because this is obviously a decision that Jack would fully support, because he would like to have 
a proper goodbye with his wife. But that that indifference in the coin toss was really interesting. Mm-hmm. What what kind of irked me about it, I guess, was the the interruption with the commercial break there, because it really felt like okay, Bell is gone, and I'm gonna have to apologize to listeners because there's an air show going on, and we're just gonna have to power through it on my end. So I'm sorry about that. But um, we thought that Bella might be dead, and then it came back, and then they were able to revive her. And so that kind of seemed like not an unnecessary trope, but a little bit of a cheap trick. Did either of you have that reaction? No, I I don't think I did, but maybe that's because I was fast-forwarding through commercials. So I don't know. I I just didn't. I Sort of the break at the end wasn't something, I guess, that, that really threw me off. Yeah, normally I watch Hannibal Live, but I'm at I'm I'm out of town playing a gig this week, so my my viewing schedule is all messed up. So I was watching it later and you fast forwarding and everything. Um, so so I didn't have that same experience. But I would imagine if I had watched it live, I would have been very disrupted by that. So I absolutely hear where you're coming from with that, Sean. Were there any other particularly uh, glaring moments like that throughout the episode, or was that the big one? Um, I think that was the biggest one. There was some stuff at the end there where Beverly is kind of narrating what she's doing, you know. Oh, there's stitches under the stitches and speaking out loud in that kind of annoying way, but that's much more forgivable. <laughs> but uh, but no, that again, just sticking on this, this Bella Hannibal scene for a little while longer, I'm, I was also unsure what would happen if the coin had gone the other way, if it was just simply you know, let her die because it seemed like for a moment he sat up really purposefully as he does sometimes. And I was worried, okay, is he going to remove something from her? Cause that didn't seem like it, that would have been too out of the ordinary, even though it would have been hard to cover up. I don't know. This is Hannibal and he, he, he does things like this. So it, it was a really strange and beautiful scene. And I guess the reason why that I had that minor issue with it was because it was shot so beautifully and the music that was playing during the first half of that as Bella is is succumbing to death was absolutely beautiful. And then the the shot that was from her perspective where it was a blurred vision of Hannibal's face uh-huh. that was kind of closing in was really well done. So it, it was absolutely effective. I think that subplot in general was definitely my favorite of the episode. And I think it's one of the the more interesting and better subplots for for this season so far because especially with her relationship to jack is one of the few times in the series where it truly humanizes the characters especially jack who is a character that i don't really care for that much i i think that's interesting i did not have any fear of hannibal repurposing her i guess uh, to put it as delicately as i can I, for me, that was a choice between do does he revive her or does he let her slip away and then call? Yeah, I don't know if it totally would make sense for him to, I guess in, in my view of, of how I see their relationship, that would have that would have been very odd, I feel. Um, Especially because there's the notion that we, they've brought up before for Hannibal or Will has discussed about the Chesapeake Ripper, that is, of how he sees his victims, the people that he chooses. He sees them as pigs uh, up for the slaughter, and I I feel like he respects her more than that. Um, So, and that's why the people that Hannibal has been killing in the style of other serial killers in his normal pattern uh, are those he sees in this way, whereas these other people that we see him decide that he needs to take out. Like, I would be very curious if he, if Dr. Uh, Maurier had been in her house, do you think he would have followed his usual pattern or would he have been more respectful, shall we say? You make a really good point. And I guess the only reason I had a question about that was because he makes the point to say to her that she is a strong person. And we haven't really gotten much of, Hannibal's philosophy on his cannibalism, but I know in certain cultures, like, um, you know, eating... Ingesting their ex- certain yeah, power. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but no, the point that you make is absolutely right. Given his history of, of who he's decided to cook up in his kitchen, um, it makes less sense for for Bella to be one of those 
characters. I, I know this is going to get into somewhat difficult or murky or personal territory, but do do you two have a side on this um, issue of Bella's suicide? I mean, do you do you align yourself more with her perspective in this instance or um, with Jack's perspective? I guess who's to whom do you have more sympathy towards? <laughs> I would say Bella. I mean, for me, and that might just be part of feeling the Jack character not being a very strong character. But I, I mean, I think the, I think the, sh- I think the show itself wants you to side with Bella too. I mean, like you said, the, how how beautiful that that scene is when when she's sort of sl- slipping away, and it, it's beautiful because it's tragic. But I think it's also beautiful because she's getting what it is that that she wants which makes then the the ending then horrific in in that way i think the show does a really good job in this episode of of showing you both sides without judgment i think that's very important in a a sequence like this or in a storyline like this you especially when we get the contextualization of Bella having watched her mother die of of cancer of breast cancer lung cancer I, I'm guessing she said she is her mother's daughter and all of that so yeah. she watched her mother die of some form of cancer and so when you add that element in and you give her more of a reason for more more of a very relatable reason for not wanting to fight or not wanting to put her family through something that they say that they want and they are willing to experience to just to get the more time with her. I think that does make her choices extra sympathetic and extra relatable, even more than they would be just when you, you know, throw the the C-bomb out there. Um, And so there's that. But I think they also, you know, by having Jack so supportive and lovely, basically, in the scene where she wakes up, I think that also goes a long way towards him because there's there's no sense of anger or of judgment or of dismay from him. He doesn't seem like he's surprised. He doesn't seem like he is, you know, is upset, you know, or that this isn't something that would have crossed his mind. So I think that is very important as well, that he does... He, while he wants her to be alive and he doesn't want her to make this decision, um, the fact that he respects her enough to not think he knows better than her, at least that's, the, I mean, and I'm reading, I'm sure I'm reading way too much into like 30 seconds of dialogue from from Jack, but I, I think the handling of it is very balanced. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also delicate. I mean, which is so not the show in general that I think it's, it's why it, it works on an emotional level. Yeah, just to take that opposing side and going off of, building off of what you've just said, Kate, also the scene between Jack and Bella at home earlier in the episode where he, despite the fact that he knows that she's tired of hearing it, but he's still going out of his way to talk about new developments and lung cancer treatment and just the way that he delivers his line, uh, I'm going to remember you as beautiful as you are right now. That really won a lot of sympathy points for me. So even though I think that you're right, Aaron, that the show wants us to especially see Bella's side to it and maybe uh, go along with that, I got a lot of sympathy for Jack in this circumstance. And so, uh, like you said, they've done a good job of building both, which is the important part of of that storyline, I think. Going on to the the other half of this, the more serial killer of the week plot, which is uh, Amanda Plummer's. I don't know what nickname we're going to give her. Have they already given her a nickname? There's nothing on IMDb, so <laughs> it's just blank. The bee lady. <laughs> the bee lady, yeah. Do you want to submit your own? I think I called her the honey harvester or something. Do you, have a, do you have a submission, Kate, for, 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 for a name? Yeah. I was thinking of something about stinging. Good to go uh, with, you know, uh-huh. the, the bees, but also the acupuncture. I don't uh-huh. I'm not nearly creative enough for that. We'll have to throw that out to the <laughs> listeners. But um, uh, creepy. Yeah. Aaron, what did, <laughs> what, what did you think of this plot? You know, we've seen several uh, uh-huh. standalone episodes with several standalone serial killers. And did this one work for you? You know, it, it half worked for me. I think that the show, I think the the serial killer of the week, as you put it, hasn't really been working as well. And I think part of that is because we only spend, and especially in this episode, we only spend 
really two scenes with her. And she does sort of expose all of her thoughts and, and why she's is doing this to people uh, and she feels noble in doing it. It doesn't really, I feel like, probe uh, into the psychology of, of the killings as well as it could. Uh, and it's such like a rich character. It, it could be such a rich character, especially with the performance of Amanda Plummer, who as soon as I saw her name, the, the actress's name during the opening credits, uh, I was hoping I was like crossing my fingers that it could be, uh, it could be the killer. And I think it's the first female killer, right. That, that they've had on the show. So I feel like it could have been, it, it could have, if it really gave her time to develop uh, and really used what she is doing instead of, I, I feel at the, by the end, it only, the only reason to have this character do this is to reveal that line to Beverly to, to realize, to look into uh, under the stitches to, to find that there's no kitty there. It, it doesn't really seem like there's, there's a lot else that that plot is, is trying to do. But I will say that first scene with, uh, the Amanda Plummer character where she's with the patient is is really horrifying. And then the second scene that we get when they're interrogating her, it felt like it turned into like an SVU, like Law & Order SVU episode where she was just like, I don't know, just the explanation of everything. It, it all felt like it was an entire like episode or an entire arc sort of distilled down into one speech. Uh, which didn't really work for me very well, unfortunately. I hear where you're coming from with that, Aaron, but for me, actually, part of that worked. I absolutely agree, actually, that another scene or two with her would have gone a long way, and uh, mm-hmm. if they weren't trying to fit so much into this episode, we, we you know, if this were a season yeah. one episode, we would have gotten that, that extra scene or two. However, I think there are enough thematic parallels between what we see from her and everything we have going on with Bella and Hannibal and in Jack and that conversation of pain and uh, is it better to live with pain or to remove it? You can't stop pain, but you can take away its meaning or take away, you know, that, you know, that conversation really worked for me. Also, like you said, I think it's, it's great that we do get our first female killer. Uh, the, if you look at the stats on serial killers, it is pre- predominantly male. It's a crime that is associated and apparently with all the numbers we have mostly committed by men, uh, so it, that it, that is fitting, but it is nice to see a little bit of a change there. And then also, I like that, I mean, it may be anticlimactic, but I like that she's not trying to hide it. She's, she thinks she's doing something uh-huh. that is helping people. She's crazy. <laughs> uh, but, um, but, but she doesn't feel the need to hide from it or and that's part of why it's easy for them to find her and when we talk about that first scene with her which is just horrifying that was the watch between your fingers scene for me i i think it's again you see in this season the the writers continuing their trend of having less explicit but far more horrifying imagery this season because again we have a victim who's alive Mm -hmm. i just wonder like how she how does she like live in society i mean she she's sort of so forthcoming and and obviously so deranged like i don't know did she and and i think supposedly this is only this she's only done this to two people so she's sort of budding in this so mm-hmm. like how, i mean i don't understand like where this char- kind of character comes from uh i mean maybe if again if we spent more time with her we could kind of see like maybe she just broke and this is like a very new thing or you know maybe this is like an escalation from something else that she was doing and the the thematic stuff putting them side to side i guess i don't know it it might just be a little too neat and and too screenwritery and too obvious i mean maybe if again if this was an arc over a few episodes and it could sort of be spread out. The themes wouldn't have clashed so hard together. Uh, and I think it could have been a, a little, uh, it would have been a little better. I, I totally get that perspective and it, it just makes sense. But I don't know. It's weird because whenever I read books, that, that layering of themes and content to kind of have everything echo one another and have really heavy symbolism, that always really bothers me when I'm reading. But for some reason, when stuff like Mad Men or this does it 
it just works for me and i don't really have an explanation as to why it's different in those mediums so i guess the more obvious that that stuff is and and the more strong those connections are the more it works for me ironically but yeah there should have been a couple more scenes maybe i I think it should be a requirement that every new serial killer that we see in the series should have some scene with hannibal lecter because he's able to draw out interesting ideas and comparing his perspective and his style um to everybody else i think would be a really interesting comparison oh no no thank you (laughs) no no, no, because not everybody needs to be talking to, to Hannibal. There are plenty of other characters who need interesting things to do and say as well. And also, Hannibal has a, a lot going on right now. So if if uh, it turned into... Because I guess for a show called Hannibal, I don't actually want this to be the Hannibal show. <laughs> but I, I mean, I see where you're coming from. He's a wonderful, very interesting character. But I, I actually specifically like that it's not the usual suspects in that scene with her. I'm sort I'm sort of worried about the show as it goes on getting just throwing too many different crazy killers into the mix especially since one thing that I think was very interesting about season 1 which was a very big flaw in my opinion how they seemed to be going back and forth from Minnesota to DC like they were like an hour away and then they sort of corrected that problem by having like a dozen serial killers all working around Maryland and Virginia. <laughs> um, and I mean, I know it's the heightened world that it, that it belongs in, but I, I'm worried about it, you know, how, how long it can last where you can have all of these, these crazy killers um, coming up from week to week and, and not, uh, not allowing uh, any single one of them to, to really be explored fully. I mean, I think you can do that in similar procedurals like a law and order or something when the the crimes that are being committed are are more sort of relatable and commonplace but when you start to do that in in a series like this i i I think that uh it's going to take a lot of the impact out of it i would agree and i think that i'm i was waiting a little bit to see how this was going to be the next step forward because the first few episodes seemed of a piece and Kate I think you mentioned that Brian Fuller talked about it moving in a new direction and this I guess seems like the last episode before that so it it did feel a little bit more procedurally but um, I think there was enough in it that I really liked and one thing especially and I think this was my last kind of big question before we move on to some of the smaller details was when Hannibal and Bella are talking in their first scene together when she goes to visit him and she asks about death and he says i've always found the idea of death comforting the thought that my life could end at any moment frees me to fully appreciate the beauty and art and horror of everything this world has to offer and a lot of that made sense with that character but the one thing i had to think about was that idea of him accepting that his life could end at any moment as if he had come to terms with that um just because We've seen how how powerful his self-preservation mode has kicked in before to where he's not ready to relinquish himself to death in the same way that Bella is. And I'm wondering, Kate, if that idea makes sense to you, if you think that he really is somebody who appreciates these things about life because he has um, such a comfortable view of death or if that part of it is a little bit more complicated and you think that he doesn't entirely buy into that idea. I think both options are possible, as with the character. There's a lot of contradiction there, and it could very well be either way. But what I immediately go to with that is that, yes, when we have seen him on Hannibal, he is very much in control. In the few fight scenes we've seen with him, he's a badass. He's not, you know, he's not in any physical danger. And he's clever and uh, ruthless enough to make sure that he's not in, in any legal danger or, you know, these other, there's not a threat on him at any given time. But we don't know what made him. And we don't know what experiences there were earlier in his life we to make him need this much control and this much uh security that 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 he would be willing to you know which he was willing to risk somewhat due to his his toying with will but you know but 
Dr. Demoye talks about that and says it's odd for him to be willing to take these risks. And and obviously, I know a little bit about the uh, prequel film uh, and the and book and everything, where Hannibal had apparently in the books he has some sort of a horrible kind of creation story with some sort of horrible goings on in his childhood. I don't know about any of that really. I don't really care because I hear that's not a great or even good book or movie but I do think that just because he doesn't seem like someone who ever has to be at peace with the fact that he could die any day right now because he is so powerful and he is so secure that doesn't mean that that wasn't what he was like at some point at that an earlier point point in his life he didn't that he wasn't much more in danger that makes perfect sense absolutely and yeah Hannibal Rising I've not read the book but uh, the film is not worth the time I think but uh, we'll move on to I, I'm be- I believe I'm going to call this segment The Devil is in the Details because I think that might be a good title so just the little things about Hannibal that we see in in it week to week uh, and these could be positive or negative things but we've talked about the dark humor before and I just wanted to mention the line where Beverly goes to see Will at the asylum and he begins talking and theorizing and he's about to suggest you know that this is Hannibal who is committing these murders and and she says don't say Hannibal Lecter and he just comes back and says I'm saying Hannibal Lecter <laughs> just Hugh Dancy's delivery of that line was absolutely priceless um, what little details stood out to you in this episode I think like you said that scene I think is really is a really good scene uh, I think, though he he doesn't get a lot in this episode. I think Hugh Dancy's really good in this episode. I mean, he's been stuck f- this season because he's basically been in a little cage the the entire uh, the entirety of the season. But the, I think maybe this isn't a little detail, but uh, I feel like this episode was sort of a hump it needed to get over, and now the rest of the season, I feel, is is going to be pushing forward uh, a lot more, uh, which is exciting. I think that it's sort of, I, I guess, I think one of the better moments of this episode was him, uh, when he realizes that Hannibal was eating his victims, that sort of realization. Of course, we already know that, as, as the viewer, but seeing him realize that was, was really cool. And I think, uh, it will, uh, is, is sort of a break that, that needed to happen for us to, to get where we know we're going at the end of the season. Yeah. The, the, the details that stood out to me like that, and that I agree that scene, especially and not even just that Hannibal is eating his victims, but that he probably fed his victims to well. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. Hannibal's eating his victims and I'm pretty sure I have too, you know, yeah. I wasn't, it was a great little bit of performance. Uh, the other things like that that stand out to me, visually, just the shot of Gina Torres crying, or the, the, the I should say, Bella crying, but with so little emotion, just, I, I don't know how she get makes that happen. That's, you know, the acting, or the maybe their saline drops or whatever, but to to be able to get those two, like, perfect tears for the scene, uh, that really stood out to me visually. And then, uh, outside of that, for my comedic moment, I gotta give it to, uh, Raul Esparza for, uh, the way he jumps back when Will leans forward to talk to him, <laughs> which was delightful. Really enjoyed that. And then my final thing is, uh, I really like the contrast between the handling of the fight air quotes fight with uh with Beverly at the end and Hannibal and of course contrasting that to the start of the season where Jack is a threat in a way that Beverly is not and so we don't there's no need for us to see that fight scene a fight scene very reminiscent by the way of Silence of the Lambs uh with Clarice and Buffalo Bill where you have the lights going off and Uh and all very reminiscent Uh in that way but the not only do we not need to see that fight scene because she doesn't stand a chance but also the I feel like that's the show being respectful of her to cut away because we all know she's going to lose, so we don't need to watch that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the final touch with that uh, is the the scoring of it, which I thought was fantastic. And so the, just the instrumentation was not what I would have expected or predicted, but I thought it worked really well. And so just to, you know the way that, that all came together was very interesting and, and I thought very well uh, handled. So those are my details. <laughs> oh, one, one other one um, for me is the, the the moment in the lobotomy scene after the, when she turns it 
did exactly yeah the, when she, when it turns and then just the sort of the look on her face when she turns it is oh so chilling so good great and that's probably as good of a place to end as any we'll be back next week to talk episode five muko zuke and once again we just like to, to thank aaron pinkston for coming on to the show aaron where can our listeners find your work online yeah, you can go to battleshipretention.com. Uh, I write DVD and theatrical reviews there. Uh, coming up around this time, I'm, I'm doing uh, a number of, of reviews from the European Union Film Festival, which is in Chicago. Uh, and then next month, I'll be doing my annual coverage of Ebert Fest, which is uh, one of the most amazing times of the year. So I'm really looking forward to that. So you can check that out at battleshipretention.com. Perfect. And Kate, are you online at all? Uh, just a little bit. So you find my writing over at soundonsite.org, uh, where I'm currently reviewing The Red Road, Parenthood, and Grimm. And then, of course, I'm uh, on our weekly TV podcast, The Televerse, which is myself and Simon Howell, talking all the week's TV each Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on when I post the episode. And, of course, I'm also on Twitter, at The Televerse, and uh, I love talking TV with you guys. So drop me a line if you want to... Uh, you know, have a little bit of an uh, off about Amanda Plummer this week. <laughs> and you can find my Hannibal reviews at tvovermind.com where I review a few other shows, but also at Sound On Site where I contribute. And my personal blog there is nothingon.com. And I believe that's it. So thank you listeners for tuning in. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design. Don't tell your mom, don't tell your sister, don't tell your boyfriend, little honey bee. She liked to call me King Bee, she liked to buzz round my tree. I call her Honey Bee. I'm a man in a trance, I'm a boy in short pants. Something